This is Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, editor of Tradition, coming to you from a very distraught and traumatized, but resilient and resolved state of Israel. During this time of Achdut, worldwide Jewish unity, we're pleased to bring you a special episode of our podcast, co-produced with our friends at Matan, the Sadie Renard Women's Institute of Torah Study in Jerusalem. Our recently released Fall 2023 issue features an essay by Dr. Josefa Fogel-Rubel titled Psalm 139, When God's Presence Both Overwhelms and Eludes. The essay explores two exegetical prisms for Psalm 139 and the theological relevance of understanding that chapter as a form of emotional struggle with God. Of course, when the essay was written and when we went to press two weeks ago, no one could have foreseen how its themes would become presciently relevant to our current moment. But that's how it often is with Torah learning. We thought it would be appropriate to chat with Yosefa about her piece in light of the events on Simchat Torah and the war. The essay is available open access on our website, traditiononline.org, where you can also access our entire issue on the Yom Kippur War 50 Years After, another item with sudden, unexpected, and unwelcome new relevance. Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel is a Ramit at the Women's Beit Midrash at Migdaloz, a lecturer at Matan, and the host of the one-on-one Parsha podcast from Matan, which explores deep thematic points of the weekly Torah portion. You can subscribe to the podcast at www.matan.org.il. But for today, we turn the microphone back on her, making her the guest of this episode, for which she is joined by Tradition's associate editor, Rabbi Yitzchak Blau. Welcome to Tradition Podcasts. This is Yitzchak Blau. I am associate editor of Tradition and a Rosh Yeshiva at Yeshiva Doraita. And uh, my guest today is Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, who is the Aramit in Migdal O's Women's Beit Midrash, a lecturer at Herzog College, host of Matan's weekly Parsha podcast, and a U.S. at Halakha. And uh, she has actually twice been the host of a podcast where I was the guest, so I know she does an excellent job. <laughs> and we are reversing roles tonight, and I will be asking her questions. Welcome, uh, Dr. Yosefa. Thank you. I know I'm a little nervous to be on this side of things, but I think we'll be okay. Okay, great. So let me just give a little background. Uh, with everything that's been going on, Tradition has been trying to focus its material on uh, subjects relevant to the situation. So maybe before I ask specific questions, if you don't mind, maybe you could summarize a little bit of what you do in that article? Sure. So the article is in exploration of Tehillim 139 of Kuf And the reason why this Mizmor has always interested me is because to me, it's one of the more theologically daring. If I can look at I look at Tehillim in general as an early, sort of like an early Sidur of Am Yisrael, sort of like an early prayer book. And there's all different, uh, there's all different elements, right? There's praise, and there's pleas, and there's distress, and there are also some like pretty, pretty courageous conversations that are had with God in some of the uh, in some of the Mizrahim of Tehillim. And and among those that I think were is really the most interesting is this is this Mizmor. And really all I do is shine a light on a particular a particular tension that exists in it. Uh, the Mizmor opens where the speaker 
is, uh, and I'll, I'm leaving the speaker as an anonymous speaker for a moment. I'm sure we'll get to that a little bit later. But the, the speaker is really thinking about how much God knows everything about the way uh, he or she, but for now I'll just say he, uh, how much he functions in the world. And God has been there from the beginning. God knows everything that uh, that he does. And in the beginning, the first section of the Mizmor, were, we, it really seems like the speaker is relatively okay with that, meaning that there's something that's awe-filling about, about that experience of God being so omniscient. Uh, but there, there is one small hint that maybe the, the speaker is ambivalent about it, uh, and that is the, the word, the word uh, tzara. In verse 5, it says, Achol v'kedem tzartani, right? That, that you are sort of, now it's from the word tzara, sort of like to besiege. And while it may not mean something negative here, it seems to be like it hints to something negative. Now in the next section, which is really the part that the article is, is really focused on and shines a light on, is these psukim. Now they're some of the most well-known, it's just a plethora of beautiful songs that have been written about these about the psukim and using these words. But just for example, um, in, in verse seven, right? Where, where can I flee from your presence? Right? If I go to the heavens, if I go to the underworld, if I go to the edge of the horizon, as we continue and, and, uh, and, and even to the places that are so dark, God, it doesn't really matter because there is no difference for you between light and dark. And there really are two ways to read those psukim. On one hand, you could read them as I, I think a little bit a little bit innocently as just a continued complete awestruck at how omniscient God is. But the part that I think is moving about that second section is that it seems to me that the speaker is entertaining what it would actually be like to run away from God. And this is kind of, I think about uh, a teenager. As a child, there's something really wonderful about the utter enveloping sort of supportive guiding hand of your parent. And at some point, if you're a healthy human, you kind of want to get away. And and to me, that's sort of like the teenagehood section of, of this mismore. And it's and and it could be that it's just a thought exercise, right? It could be that this person who speaks never really tried to run away from God. But even as a thought exercise, I think that it's a very important voice to highlight because it's a voice that still makes it into Tanakh, right? And I, I do believe that that is the intention here. I believe that the intention is that the person wants to run away from God and they're trying to figure out where can I go? Whoops, I can't go anywhere because you happen to be everywhere. And what happens in the continuation of the more is that the speaker ends up reframing that, right? They reframe that desire to run away and again, come back to this place where like the enveloping omniscient presence of God is something that they love. And they end up going back to these creation motifs and God, you've been there before. I mean, you could almost insert the word DNA in this more. It's unbelievable. It really dances around that idea, right? In the beginning, you know, uh, membranes almost of who I was, you've been there. So there's sort of this really interesting psychological movement in the more that I kind of wanted to shine a light on. And so that's what the article explores. Some literary ideas, some semantic ideas, but really also that psychological space, because I think that that many people experience that. And we often think that the voices in Tanakh are all pious, quote unquote, or the way that we would imagine piety to look. But I think that very, there's a, there are a lot of different kinds of voices in Tanakh. And so that's sort of what I wanted to highlight. Okay. It sounds fascinating. So before we get back to the Mizmor, maybe I'll pick up on something you said about Tehillim in general. Mm -hmm. So I'll ask you a two-part question. Would you say that Sefer Tehillim presents the most intimate biblical portrait of a human being relating to God more than any other Sefer? 
And you mentioned there's something perhaps courageous and daring about Tilim. So you explained what might be daring here, let's say the desire to flee from God. Do other particular prakim come to mind where you'd have that kind of uh, daring account? Okay, so in terms of your first question, Tehillim, unlike other books of Tanakh, is is the human side of things, meaning Tehillim expresses a really varied degree with repetition in it, but a varied degree of human voices. So I don't know if I would say that it is the most full picture we have of the of the God-man relationship because we have other books where there's actual communication, right, between man and God. So Tehillim is, I think, is the most intimate portrait we have of the way um, first temple and even second temple in the early years uh, of Jews experienced their relationship with God. And in that way, I think it's a priceless window into how the, and it's maybe it sounds too academic this way, but how the biblical heart and mind functions and how, how prayer functions. Some of these mizmorim, it's very clear that they had communal functions. They were communal prayers. Some of them are more individual. So I think that it's a really intimate portrait of, of individuals, but I think that we have other books that give us a a clear window into that kind of divine relationship because here God just doesn't speak. So that that would be my first response to the first question. Uh, in terms of the the second question of, of courageous voices in Tehillim, I, I think courageous is a a very relative term. Okay, meaning I think that a lot of times we people look at Tanakh and assume certain very pious positions. So if I if I'm taking that sort of like modern lens. There are Mizmere Tehillim, for example, I'm thinking of 88, I'm thinking of perhaps also, I believe it's Mizmor Chet, it's eight, but I may be mixing up the numbers, where you have someone in distress and they assume that it's because they sinned. Now, in the same regard, you have other Mizmere Tehillim where somebody is in distress but they do not, at least in the Mizmor, express any awareness that it's because of anything that's happened to them. And and so that, again, I don't know if I would say it's courageous, but it already speaks to a very different kind of experience, right? Is is my hardship because I sinned? Or it's just a hardship and I have no explanation for it and God, get me out of it, right? You put me here, get me out of it. So I think that it's sort of like this multiplicity or multi-vocal kind of experience. and. If you think it's courageous or not, really depends on how you think a relationship with God is supposed to look, how much you think a person is supposed to be able to open up their mouth to God and 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 complain or, or ask for something else. I certainly think that all of the hymns, right, all the praises of God in different ways are are sort of, I would say, more, they're more expected voices. Uh, but then you also have, uh, I, again, there's really, there's there's so many different ways of, of relating to God. And that to me is the courageous part of Tehillim is simply the opening up of all those options. But it kind of makes me think of a little bit about, about Avraham and his challenge at Stone. Okay. Meaning Avraham is not very deep into his career as a messenger of God. I'm thinking about this also, the partial will be coming up. And and already he's challenging God. And the sense we get from Sefer Breshit is that God actually wants that, right? He He's inviting that kind of challenge. And so I think that we're just, we kind of over the years have gotten used to being 
accepting of pain. And I think that Tehillim is a book that reminds you that you can accept God and you can engage in a relationship with God and still be very unhappy with him. And that I think is a very important piece. So you have now mentioned two perhaps theologically daring uh, attitudes, which I'll reiterate in a second. I want to ask about the presence of a third. Mm -hmm. So you've just mentioned challenging uh, divine justice, where we experience like the wicked prospering, which I think uh, happens in several places in Tanakh. Uh, in this particular Mizmar that you analyze, Kuflamitet, right, you talk about feeling overwhelmed by God's presence. And as you described it, the teenager's desire for freedom and independence. But I think as you say in the article, moderns might talk about a third experience, an experience of the absence of God, which I think is different than the first two. Meaning when I'm complaining about divine justice, I'm complaining to God who I'm confronting. And when I'm feeling overwhelmed by God, obviously God is omnipresent. So do we find expression either in Tehillim or elsewhere of the frustration of the absence of God? I, I believe so. Meaning if I'm if I'm broadening from this Mizmor, I think we do have Mizmor Tehillim where we just have this open question, right? God, where are you? But the starting point, and again, I, I may be mistaken, but the starting point for the voices in Tehillim is that God is, is, in, is actively involved in the world. And that is where we have the biggest break between, I think, where a lot of moderns stand and where the biblical voices stand. Yes, it's an assumption. Maybe we don't get it. Maybe we don't get how it works. But the assumption is there's somebody on the other end of things that's listening, even if we don't like the answer, even if we don't feel like they're doing what we want them to do. So I, I think that that is a basic, a basic assumption. And that's why in the article, the, the final section of the article is where I say, well, well, what happens, right? To me, I read this article and I say, as we say in Hebrew, it's sort of like the, the difficulty of the rich, right? Who, as someone who feels so unbelievably overwhelmed by the presence of God, which is why I do think that the voice here is likely some sort of prophet, also because there's a lot of similarities to different, different verses in, in Yirmiyahu. But it, it, this sounds to me like someone's in a pretty good place. You know, the, the amount of students I have who will say, you know, I had to take a break from class because I was feeling so overwhelmed by the religious experience. And the, it, it happens once in a while, but they're the, far, <laughs> they're the few, far and few in between. So the voice we were much more familiar with is people who are saying, I, I don't know, I don't really feel anything or I'm talking, but I don't really know if anyone's listening. So I do think that that does separate us a little bit from, from the biblical voice, which 100% does not look at the world as there's no option that God isn't isn't around and isn't listening. Great. In fact, I just said to a student today oh, that uh, the voice of atheism doesn't really appear as an option. No. Uh, you have paganism as an option or other religions as an option, but not so much the absence, total absence of God. Yeah, that that's a, I mean, we can, we can really see where that entered the world, right? That was, that's not a popular voice in the ancient world. It wasn't a starting point. You looked around the world and all the forces of life were so overwhelming and it was very clear to everybody that, that there was something much larger here um, behind all of this. It was the makings of, of the modern world that brought that voice into, into being. Okay. Now I'd like to hear about the end of the article, but maybe one more point before we get there. Uh, you've mentioned twice that you have something to say about who the voice is, who the speaker is. Mm-hmm. So maybe explore a little bit um, who might be the speaker and does that affect our reading of this parak? So 
first of all, just say that even the concept of running from God and the same words that are used, they obviously remind us of the story of Yonah, so much so that the, the commentators actually bring in this pasuk when they refer to Yonah, but in the commentaries there, we realize that they say it can't be that Yonah meant to really run away like we have in this mizmor, meaning this mizmor and the syntax of those words is much more theologically daring than what likely happens in Yonah, who was likely trying to run away from the ability to receive prophecy, not because he actually thought he could run away from God, whereas the language which here seems to actually entertain that that fantasy. Um, again, as I said, I think that the speaker here, it seems to me like an extraordinary kind of person. Uh, I think that the conclusion of, you know, that I realized that God was present in when I was, you know, being created in the womb of my mother, uh, those are conclusions that a regular person can come to. But I do think that the uh, that the speaker uh, himself is is someone who is extraordinary, also because of the intense divine presence that he feels, and also because at the end of the Mizmor, which is an interesting question of itself, the end of the Mizmor is very inconsonant. It's kind of very jarring ending. We have a number of Mizmoritilim that end like this, which it's really, I think, they're their own genre, where they end with this request from God to separate, right, separate me from the wicked, make sure that I keep going on the proper path, and and the the speaker turns to these sort of theoretical enemies that are trying to attack. Meaning, I've come to this very. Um, this very pious conclusion that God is always with me and I want to make sure that I sort of don't get tainted and I also want to bring others to believe in you as well. A little bit, I think of it as like, again, the call of the Baal Tshuva, meaning now that I'm really convinced, please let me be amongst those that are wonderful and, and let me not be distracted from from my mission. And and so that also, again, if that voice is really inherent to the rest of the, of the Mizmor, it sounds like we're speaking about someone who's a representative of God. It's not just a stom person in the community. You know, maybe it's not a prophet, but I do. There are other psukim also here that really recall psukim and Yirmiyahu. Also, especially those last that last section of, of pesukim tet uh, through kaf, kaf gimel. The, uh, sorry, kaf dala, the last uh, five psukim. And in that regard, we have here somebody who yes is in sort of this constant intense dialogue with the divine and and after coming to terms with it and again i think of yirmiyahu the most and i don't think yirmiyahu wrote this means more but i think that this really could be a, a a very apt description of his experience right how so often in the book of yirmiyahu he expresses the overwhelming presence of god and then he's angry at god god doesn't listen to him god says he's not going to listen to him right and he communicates with god and we have you know yirmiyahu's tefilot are another very important theme in the book and and here we really we really see that we see somebody who is very very in touch with the with the omniscience of of god in the world has issues with it and then sort of comes to terms with it so yeah it seems to me like this is a speaker that is not just your regular your regular plain believer okay now every once in a while when i'm in dialogue i like to reiterate an excellent point that my uh my uh, partner made. So I just want to say something I found very fascinating that you said. Uh, you contrasted Yonah with the author here. Mm-hmm. And I think if I understood correctly, Yonah is not fleeing from God. He's fleeing from prophecy or his prophetic role. And I think that works very nicely with a lot of the traditional interpretations of Yonah in that, let's say, he doesn't believe in mercy. So he doesn't want to give a prophetic message to Ninveh. Or he doesn't want Ninveh to make Am Yisrael look bad. Mm-hmm. So again, neither of which would be a flight from God, really, it would be a flight from the prophetic role. Yeah. And it sounds like in Kuflamitet, you feel more, it's not a flight from prophetic role, it's this deeper flight from God's yeah. omnipresence. Yeah. Okay, but you also threw in your Mio. So now I'm curious, 
it sounds like you think Yumio is actually a stronger parallel to the author of Koflametet than Yona is. Do you have a particular passage in Yumio where Yumio ex- expresses frustration and being overwhelmed by God? Is there something very specific in mind? I don't know if this totally answers your question because it's a slightly different kind of torture. <laughs> but uh, we have that the famous passage in Yirmiyahu in the 20th chapter where where Yirmiyahu, because of the torture that his prophecies bring him, he wants to try and keep it inside. And he says when he when he tries to keep his prophecies inside, he says, I can't, it basically feels like I'm being burnt alive when I keep my prophecies inside. Uh, but before that passage, before that, that pasuk, he also says earlier in two pasukim earlier, Here he says that he feels like, God, you know, you're putting me in this position where I have to bring the people messages they don't want to hear. I'm being tortured. And I basically feel like I'm just sort of a source of, I'm a source of mockery. And I, I don't, that's not the same thing, okay? That's not the same thing as what we're describing here. But Yirmiyahu, uh, as an example of someone who has a very direct line to God, but also feels the limitations of that line. So that's where I feel it. It's not in the same positive context. I think we have many prophets who have a very deep relationship with God. But it's more, we, we don't see many prophets who try and break with God. Now, Yirmiyahu tries to break with God because God also breaks with him at a number of points where he blocks his tefillah. He tells him he can't come to the Beit Hashem. So there, there's something more complicated going on there. But I really think of Yirmiyahu, I think, especially at the end of the Mizmor with sort of speaking to the enemies. Who, who are these enemies per se? We have that general question throughout Tehillim. Are these actual enemies? Are people actually being chased by by physical armies? Or is it sort of this broad metaphor for difficulties in one's life? And I think that Yirmiyahu gives just a, a good example of somebody who both was plagued on a religious level and also faced physical enemies. So I just think that in terms of that general question that sort of hovers over the book of Sefer Tehillim, Yirmiyahu can provide a, uh, a, good, a good example. I don't think that necessarily is the same idea as being over overwhelmed by the omniscience of God, but it's sort of being overwhelmed by some sort of presence that's inside of him. And he says, I, I can't keep it inside. So not the same experience, but but one that I think maybe is part of the same the same semantic uh, world. Okay, I'm glad you made that last point, because I have to admit, when you initially were explaining it, it was very powerful, but it sounded more Yona-like to me, that the prophetic role is what's irritating mm-hmm. to your meal. But now I think what you're saying is that that particular verse about the burning inner world of the divine encounter, that's something you get in Yomio that you don't get in Yona. Mm -hmm. And correct me if I'm misunderstanding, that kind of moves us closer to the world of Tehillim Koflamatek. Yes. Yeah. And in in the case of Yirmiyahu, sorry, in the case of Yona, we really don't have a sense of how he experiences his prophecy. There's something very externalized about about his whole interaction throughout that, both in his interaction with the people, as an interaction with God, it feels very intellectualized, meaning obviously he's acting out of emotion, but there's something about it. There's this theological debate that he has with God. Yermiah was one of the few windows of prophets who are, get really, really emotional with God. Um, we don't have that same voice when it comes to Yonah. I think that they both have an interesting relationship with this means more. I don't think it's the same. I think they both have sort of some overlapping. If I'm thinking of like a Venn diagram in my mind, there's something overlapping about them. Um, in Yonah's desire to run, in Yermiyahu's experience of prophecy being something that overwhelms him. Um, but I don't think any of them are exactly this means more, which is why it has a great place in the biblical corpus because nothing else takes its space. 
Okay, and now I'm facing a new problem that uh, Yosef is inspiring me to raise other questions before I get to the end of the Mizmar. So maybe <laughs> I'll just do one more because I, I found something she said now really interesting. A lot of scholars say that uh, Tanakh doesn't tend to portray the inner world of its characters, but we figure it out from their actions. But I think that if I understood, that actually might be a Yona Yermio split here. That in Yona, we're not really given a window into his inner world. Right, we have to infer it from, oh, he runs away. Let's see why he might object to the prophetic role. Where you have a real sense of his emotional and experiential uh, um, uh, experience. So would you say that's fair? And would you say that Tehillim in general would be a counter to that kind of assumption I said before, that Tehillim is just one window into the inner world after another? Uh, totally, yes. But again, it's an, it's a window into an inner world of... The, the, the difficulty with Tilim is that we have many more questions than we have answers. Who are the speakers? What are they talking about? Are there real enemies here? What period is this from? How much of this is David HaMelech? Right? We have all these questions that constantly hover. So Tehillim really is, it's part of Ketuvim because it really is the very human side of things. Uh, I don't think that that is true. I think we have, we definitely have insight into the inner world of uh, of many of many biblical characters. Um, but the idea of going off on like a deep emotional theological speech was also just not necessarily the way the way people spoke. I mean, think of of how much we have in even the story of Yosef. And what we walk away from is that he took new perspective, right? It wasn't you, it was God, right? That that probably was years of of personal thinking about about his story. So we we just they're they're different genres of writing. They're different ways of of speaking and expressing, and that's why I think Tehillim is is so fascinating, and why ultimately it's lasted for so long because we in we intuit that it's a voice of the people. It was a voice of the people then, and it still gives voice to now. We have questions. We have ways of speaking categories there that we don't necessarily relate to, but but I think that humans intuit the fact that Tehillim is something that that is ours uh, and that it is emotional, which is why it's persisted for so long. Okay, let's move towards the end of the article now. I'm going to again ask a two-part question, which you could either answer together or really split apart. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we now seem to have two opposite problems, right? The problem of the author of Tehillim Kuflamitet, they're overwhelmed by God's presence, mm-hmm. and the problem of what we've been calling the problem more of the modern Jew, that they, they are frustrated by the absence of feeling God's presence. So if you were looking to advise someone, are you kind of working towards a solution? Okay, give me a suggestion for, or maybe what Tehillim's solution is for the first problem. What's the solution for being overwhelmed by the divine presence? And what might you say to a modern struggling with the absence of the divine presence? So the first question, um, for the blessed few who feel overwhelmed by God, <laughs> I think that what we what we learn from this Mizor of Tehillim is the importance of the frame. Okay, and again, I'm going to go back to our our metaphor of the teenager. The the teenager at some point has to come to terms, right, with the the pluses and minuses of their parent, right? Again, also in the article, I say that when people are overwhelmed today, they're more overwhelmed even by communal norms, right? That that's those are the things that really overwhelm them. But at some point, if we want to be healthy and not feel like we're on the run, right? We have the voice of somebody in that second section who's on the run, and uh, I, I can quote this. I think in the name of a number of people. But as long as you're still running from something, that thing is still controlling you. So if you you have to somehow make peace with it, otherwise you're either going towards it or running away from it. So I think that the mizmor 
like all healthy responses, sort of the speaker comes to terms and they say, well, yes, I cannot run from God. So instead, I'm going to find the elements of my relationship with God that move me. So for the speaker in Tehillim, it's it's the knowledge that God was part that God is part of the fabric of creation. Now that might not be a moving argument for us today, but there are two main arguments that are very moving in the biblical mind view. One is the the God being there at the creation of the world or creating the world, and the other is God's involvement in history. Those are two different motifs. We're not going to go too deep into them now, but but that is the first one is what comforts the speaker. And so just taking it as a paradigm, I would say you have to find the the elements of that omniscient relationship that feels enveloping. To take it from tsara, from something that besieges you, that that besieges you, that sort of makes you feel like you're choking and and go into a space of feeling enveloped. Now, for some people maybe that's like limiting their religious time. I mean, it could be that it's a time issue. It could be that it's a proportionality. Um, and so I think that the more sort of pushes someone and says, if that's overwhelming for you, figure out the element that is going to make you feel hugged and not choked. And I think that every human knows the difference between those um, very tactile experiences. And the second question... Actually, if I yeah. could interrupt you for one yeah. second. I'm sorry, I'm going to indulge again in repeating a point I really liked. Um, you expanded a little bit what it means to be overwhelmed. And I think that's actually very important because it turns out that the first experience now is a much broader category. Because you said correctly, I think, that not so many moderns feel overwhelmed by God, but there are many ways to feel overwhelmed by religion. Yeah. So you talked about being overwhelmed by communal norms. I imagine somebody could be, feel overwhelmed by the halachic system. Yeah. Right. So at that point, all of a sudden, that first conversation actually is much more prevalent today. Yeah. Right. It might not, and I think a lot of your response is a response to that. So I think it's very important now. It's not, oh, we'll find like the four people in, you know, Gush who feel overwhelmed by the divine presence. But actually, there could be a lot of kinds of overwhelmed by religion that uh, that we have to address. Yeah. And, and I think that everybody in their own religious journey has to find the proportions and the relationship with those elements that, again, if unless they want to keep running forever, which I don't think they do. It's going to catch up with them somewhere. So if you if you want to find a place of peace, you have to somehow turn around, look at that thing, whether it's the relation, whether it's relationship with God, whether it's relationship with your family, whether it's relationship with your community, and figure out how you can make that loving, as opposed to feeling like it's going to attack you always. Okay, wonderful. Now let's go to the second question. So the second question regarding regarding moderns, right, and and sort of the the voice that is just much more prevalent are those who who don't feel uh, the overwhelming presence of God. And so also in the article, what I what I sort of do is present some other philosophical voices that I think sort of complement this this um, this mismore, but they complement it because they really speak about the opposite experience. Uh, and so I, I think that, you know, again, I, you can read the article, but we speak a little bit the Rambam, just the recognition of the idea that most people, even let's say go to the Middle Ages, that the majority of people are sort of feeling lost and they're not sure. And maybe they get little slivers of, of a sense of God or they get, you know, a, a, a lightning, you know, strikes middle of the night. They have a moment of clarity, but most of the time they're walking in the dark, right? That, that famous image. And, um, and I also bring in the voice of Eliezer Berkowitz, who I will, if you allow me, I'm not exactly sure when this is going to air, but um, my father, Aleva Shalom, whose yurtzeit is, is in a few days, so he was a very big Eliezer, Eliezer Berkowitz fan, and 
he was not a man of, of objects, but the only object I have that was my father's is this book that I have right next to me, which I took from his night table a number of years ago. And uh, and my whole, just years of my childhood, I just, this book was always sitting, The Essential Essays on Judaism, edited by, uh, by um, David Chazoni. But in any event, he has a, a really wonderful article in here on, on really the relationship with the divine. And he speaks about the importance of a, of a faith experience and how sometimes if you don't believe faith meaning sorry if you don't feel the presence of god faith or belief is what is what ties you to that to that relationship with god meaning if you don't actually have the 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 actual meat right the relationship isn't there but by having faith it's what keeps you connected and and again i think that different people find themselves in different spaces we live in a world today where people there's this authenticity is a really big word i'm not such a big fan of it by the way i'm a very authentic person but i don't i don't love the word in all the contexts that it gets overused uh, and and I think that, but for example, and Eliezer Berkovitz says that, and if you don't feel like you even have faith, by the way, rely on the covenant that was made with the with the matriarchs and patriarchs, with the imahot and avot, which I think is a really fascinating thing. He says, schut avot is something that a regular person can lean into. You don't even have faith. Know that your forefathers had faith, right? So this, I think, is an interesting approach for someone who feels so far removed that, that faith is something to them that feels totally irrelevant. I don't think it's an answer, but it's an interesting, I think, I think it's a moving idea for someone who, who says, I do believe in God. I have a relationship with God, but it feels not it doesn't feel strong all the time and he says well that faith of yours is what's actually keeping you tied to god so i think that's very moving on the other hand i also i also think that that um that avram yoshua heschel has some really important things to say in this conversation uh and he even he goes even further and he says that only when you feel the lack of god will you know what it feels like to have god and 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 to have relationship with god and in that regard it really reminds me of 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 the experience of Adam and Chava, right? Only when he feels a loneliness is he able to appreciate the the finding of of the wife. So again, does it solve the problem? No, but it basically says in the in the darkness, in the feeling of I don't have the relationship with God, that's where when it does come, you can find it. What I will say on a totally practical level is that I think a lot of people romanticize what it means to have a relationship with God, just like we romanticize what it means to love our spouse. Okay. Meaning the the really small gesture or the small moments or the music that moves you or the breeze or sitting out on your porch and feeling tremendous nachat, just a peace at what you see in front of you, to me is part of feeling God. God to me is a, here I mean just being like totally like vulnerable and open on a very public podcast, but that to me is, that's part of my relationship with God. And on a regular day in my stage of life, I get a lot more of that than I do, you know, intense omniscience in prayer or whatever else. So I think that a lot of people overestimate what it means to have a relationship with God. And and maybe it's because these biblical categories seem big and scary. But I think that just realizing that those that movement is is itself being in contact with something divine. Okay, you've said a lot of interesting things. I'm going to ask a question <laughs> just try to deepen a few. Okay. Um, let's differentiate between two people someone who occasionally has a profound religious experience and someone who doesn't. Mm -hmm. So I've often thought that the first person is in much better shape. Like, let's say I occasionally have a really inspiring mincha. So it could be I could go through uh, a month without one because I know it's there. I know mm -hmm. it's possible. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I, I'm searching for that experience again and don't view it as a futile endeavor. And then you have someone who will say, like, I never have inspiring minchas. So what, how do I deal with it? 
Now, you mentioned a number of models. You had the Heschel model, where the absence of God perhaps is part of a longing for God, mm-hmm. and the Berkowitz model, where I see things in terms of covenant, and I know that my ancestors had a relationship with God. So I'm just curious, those two models, do they relate to both people? Are they for the second person? Like, just plug into your framework someone who does have religious experiences and someone who does not. Okay, I think the person who who does have religious experiences is definitely in an easier space. And I think that that both of them are relevant because, as you said, even someone who has religious experiences is also going to be in a place of absence uh, in, in many moments of their life. And... And, and that, so I think that, that that it fits into both. For the person who doesn't have any moments, uh, I think that, that if you, again, you have to read deeper the article of Ravelio Zerberkovitz, I think that they have a harder time with that article. That article really is predicated on an idea that you do have some sort of initial experience with God that you keep remembering and that your faith kind of connects you to the initial experience. So I think that for someone who says, I don't even know what you're talking about when you talk about, like, what are you talking about <laughs> religious experience? I'm not sure what that means. I know what it means to keep halacha. I know what it means to like fulfill the things my grandparents did, but I don't know what it means religious experience. For someone like that, I think that, that um, Eliezer Berkowitz's prism is somewhat less helpful. And that's why for that kind of person, I would say, let's try and reframe what you think that means. Because I think that someone who says, I don't really know what it means to have a, I don't, I don't really buy it, to be honest. Like, I, I don't buy it. I think that that there must, there, there must be things that they're experiencing that connect them to all that they can't see in front of their eyes and that they're just calling it something else. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way. I mean that, I mean that Dafka in a loving, open way. Like, I think many of us, we intuit so many things and we, we don't have words for them. We assume that because we don't have words for them or because they don't have some religious category that it can't be it. And I think that that, that often can be refracted and, and can be put in a lens of, of uh, some sort of contact with, with the divine. So the truth is, is that you've sort of enumerated a number of prisms. I just want to add in one more because I think that it's a voice that uh, I use a lot of music in general in my teaching, not because I think that modern singers are in any way the giants of our greatest luminaries like the Rambam or, or any modern luminaries, but because I think that they give voice to to people now. And I think that for that, they're really invaluable because so many people experience life, but they don't necessarily possess the words or the capabilities to express it. But I look at, I look at these people who are not only, not only let's say a modern singer, but a modern singer who's extremely popular. They're popular because they seem to be hitting a note, pun intended. They seem to be hitting a nerve with, with the world right now. And so when someone is wildly successful, again, like Yishai Ribo or Hanan Ben-Ari, it interests me not just because I find watching talented people one of the most inspiring talk about touching the divine one of the most inspiring things you could do but it's also to me really says that they've hit something that people are experiencing at this moment in time so i also look at it just like anthro anthropologically so there's a song that was actually hanan benari's one of his for anyone who doesn't know that is you should <laughs> Google. Uh, and so one of Hanam and Ariz, it actually was his first single, I believe. And it was called Mimech um, Adelai. It came out in 2014. And the 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 song is was, again, it was also pretty daring because he was speaking about his complicated relationship with God, which has continued to be, by the way, this is not a musical podcast, but it's a continued theme in his music. Unlike Yishai Ribo, who's much more Jewish music, it's a, a stance of full belief. Hanan Ben-Ari is much more complex and it also attracts a somewhat different crowd. Anyways, I, I, I love analyzing his music. So in that song, the part that, the only part I really want to mention he speaks about that 
I'm a turtle without a shell. I don't have a roof on my head. He speaks about being really, really vulnerable and he's speaking directly to God. But the the chorus of that song, he, he says the following, that uh, I've, I've run to you, okay, but I haven't I haven't found anything. Sorry, I've run away from you. You, God, are at the other end of the door, but you are sort of trying hard to be quiet. Now the song ends, and what does he say? Um, he says, I'm standing at the, at the door, but I am not, I'm, I don't have yet have enough, enough gumption or enough courage to knock. Uh, and he says, I've run away and I haven't found anything. He says, And he says, and all of a sudden there's this roar and you come out suddenly. Now, why is that song relevant here? Because Hanan Menari says that another voice here is pe- are people who know that there's something that they can't see. They know there's someone at the other side of the door, but they're too scared to knock. Okay, they're too scared to go there. And so that's another category of people today. We have so many people who say very often, I'm a believer, I'm a believer. That in Israel is a very common phrase you hear. I'm a believer without any relation to their observance of halacha, meaning most people here, the majority of the populace are believers. But Hanan ben says, him speaking as a religious Jew, he says, but but I don't actually want to meet God, meaning I know he's there, but I'm too scared. And so the gift that he has in this song, if I'm reading it correctly, is that God actually opens up the door to him. And so that would be what Raleigh Berkowitz would call a divine encounter, that God actually gifted him with saying, I opened the door. You couldn't get yourself to open that door all this time. I'm going to open the door on you. And so I love that song because I think that it really adds a different nuance of, of, of somebody who says, I know that God's there, but for some reason I keep running away. And in the song he says, but God, you're running away. But in the end, he says, no, 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 it's really me. I keep running away. So I think that there's another like another voice there that deserves some attention. Okay, so I'm going to close with two comments, and then we'll see if uh, Dr. Rubel has anything else she wants to add. Uh, first of all, just for the listener who might not be aware, there's this really fascinating phenomenon now of uh, religious singers, or at least singers who are singing religious themes that somehow transcend the audience of the religious Zionist community. Yeah. And uh, it's just fascinating that you'll have concerts by Yisha Ribo, Hanan Benari, where uh, many secularists seem to be thoroughly enjoying uh, music about religious themes. So that, I realize that's not our topic, but if you're not aware of this phenomena, you should become aware of it. I think it's an important uh, aspect of trying to understand contemporary Israeli society. Mm. Uh, secondly, I want to say that I think this podcast has shown that uh, we have young talent in the community that we should be happy about, including uh, Dr. Rubel. <laughs> I think we've had here a... Uh, combination of uh, sensitive biblical reading with theology, uh, with the contemporary Israeli music, and of course, with thinking about the, the difficult situation we're currently in, where, uh, as we've said, perhaps more people thinking about the absence of God than being overwhelmed by God. But uh, again, how even the encounter with Tilim can be helpful in navigating these uh, these difficulties. Okay, so I'll just ask, actually, do you want to make any closing comment? Yeah, I guess I'll just make a closing comment about the insanity that's currently going on in the world around us i i am always careful not to draw any two direct connections right between between anything uh that we've said here and what's going on i think that for those who find solace in the book of tehillim at this moment of time that's amazing and i think that that's a, a something that was intentional it's a reason why it's been preserved in tanakh uh, i do want to say that for anybody who's gone into the realm of divine questioning at this moment, wait a little bit. Meaning, 
in whenever there is something that is so utterly difficult, we simply don't have any perspective yet. It's funny, I was just reading an article today that I won't say who wrote, and I thought to myself, it is crazy to me that they were able to write that article that was such a bird's eye view about what's going on, because I don't possess any of that right now, meaning I'm in the treading above water, not even every day above water. So I think that when it comes to asking you know, big philosophical questions. So first of all, I'll say to me, that's like a privilege right now that I certainly don't feel like I have. And and second of all, these kind of things take time. And just like Tehillim is a book that took so many years to take shape and, and we have to get perspective on it. I think also what's going on now, I would be very, very careful before sort of putting on too many religious categories. Right now we're in the eight Sarah of the time to, to Davin. Believe me, there's going to be a time for reckoning, a reckoning on the political level, a reckoning perhaps also on the religious level. But I, I don't think that that time is yet. So I would just say we're in a in a hold moment, and we have to figure out right now what has to happen. And and over time, I'm sure we can have very rich religious conversations about it. Okay. And I just want to remind the listener that you could read uh, Yosef's article on Tradition Online again, traditiononline.org. And I want to say thank you for a very uh, enjoyable and educational conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs>